Proverbs 16, verse 1 says, The plans of the heart, 16, 1, belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, Proverbs 16, 3, and your plans will be established. Everybody look at that again. Commit your works to the Lord, and what will happen? Your plans will be established. You might want to write Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 right in that margin because it's the same idea. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? He will direct your path. So you have promises. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, 16.4, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to track God's will, you need to really factor in the fear of the Lord and what he would direct you to do. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, verse 7, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. You want to figure out the ways of the Lord? Shortcuts are not of God. Rip-off schemes are not of God. The, if you say, well, it's going to get me to the end that I'll have a bunch of money and then I can bless the kingdom and serve in ministry, but i got to kind of cheat my way. Not of God. God would rather you have less and be righteous than have more and have manipulated your way to that end. And I know in business and all of that, it's very tempting, uh, you know, when you're trying to make a business deal and you have to cut corners or compromise, but that's not what God wants of you. The mind of man, nine, plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I was reading an old commentary that says, man proposes, God disposes. <laughs> Don't you like that? If your plan is against God's plan, you're going to lose. And if you get your way outside of the will of God, it's often destructive as well. A divine decision is in the lips of the king, and we're dealing with King David in our text. His mouth should not err in judgment. You know, if you're a decision maker, you need to be careful that you're seeking the Lord consistently. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Now, one more, all the way to the book of James, near the uh, middle end of your New Testament, the book of James, just after Hebrews. James is addressing a group of people who are business-oriented. And uh, he's not saying that making plans and wanting to make money is a bad thing. We all want to be successful at our careers and all of that. But he's warning people not to do that outside of God being at the center of your business or your personal life. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, James 4.14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. These guys were devoid of God. They didn't even put God in the equation. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do, 
and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is what we call sins of omission. They're sins of commission, what you commit. Sins of omission is what you omit. Little boy was asked in Sunday school, do you know what the sins of omission are? He said, yes, those are the sins that uh, I just haven't gotten around to yet, but I, I'm gonna get there at some point. I, no, these are the things that we know the right thing to do it and we don't do it. R. Kent Hughes says, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God, close quote. Is the will of God at the center of your decision-making? It needs to be. It should be because his will should be the primary drive of your life. Is it? Is his will the primary drive of your life? We are in a series called The Kingdom of God. We've defined the kingdom of God as saying it's about God's will, God's way among God's people. You are part of the kingdom of God. And the question becomes, in my everyday life, can I live for that kingdom? And the answer is, yes, you can. If you make God the foundation and center of all that you are doing in your career and so forth. Now, back to 2 Samuel as we pick up this story. And there are a lot of people, as I mentioned, that are claiming to be Christians, but for all intents and purposes, live as practical atheists in their everyday life. That's not what we want to be. So here's 2 Samuel 14, and this is what it says. This is verse 1. Now Joab, he was David's commander and nephew, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart, 2 Samuel 14, 1, was inclined. I'm reading from the New American Standard. The ESV says, went out. The NIV says, longed for. Absalom. The New King James says he was concerned about Absalom. And there are some debates as to the meaning of the Hebrew here. It's a, the Hebrew is a little ambiguous. And part of what has determined the uh, translation of this is back in chapter 13, the very last verse, verse 39. It says, The heart of the king, the heart of King David, longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. Now, if you weren't with us last time, Amnon was killed by Absalom. Amnon raped his sister. Uh, Absalom was angry. He sat on that anger for a couple of years and then hatched a plan and killed his brother. Absalom ran out. He went uh, to his grandfather. He's some 80 miles away from the kingdom of David. He basically hid there and he was banished from the king. And the king was going through a myriad of emotions. He was grieving Amnon, who was his firstborn, heir to the throne. And he was in turmoil over Absalom. And I think it's fair to say from the Hebrew here that David's feeling towards Absalom was turmoil. In fact, there are some scholars that believe, as you move over to chapter 14, verse 1, that the best way to translate this uh, particular verse is that his heart was against Absalom. Uh, the Hebrew can allow for that. And then some say that maybe he, the best way to think about this is that he was mulling over Absalom, but he didn't know which direction to move in. 
And he didn't do anything about Absalom either. Because what Absalom had done was vengeance for the rape of his sister. And so David could have put it in a category where by the law he should have paid with his life for spilling blood. But then again, Absalom spilled the blood of a man who had committed a terrible crime. And there was a case to be made that maybe he was correct in what he did. He meted out vengeance. Maybe he was correct. So as David pondered that situation, and he also pondered his own sin, which I had mentioned in a previous uh, time that we were together, actually last time we were together, that David had lost some moral authority. It's hard to speak authoritatively into situations when you yourself are in compromise or you recently fell to the same sin. How can you speak with authority to a situation if you just recently did the same thing? David had just committed adultery and murder, right? And so he had lost some of his moral authority. And here he was mourning Amnon day by day. He mourned him. And he was mulling over Absalom. And I think this is a good way for you note takers to think about it. He was mourning Amnon and I think mulling over Absalom. That is, he didn't really know what to do or how to feel towards Absalom. If the middle son had died, uh, and I won't go into the other verses right now, that came after Amnon, then Absalom would be heir to the throne at this point, which made it even more complicated. And you're going to see in a moment that Absalom was popular among the people, which made it even more, uh, I guess, urgent and troublesome for David. So three fixers we're going to see in chapter 14. Joab is going to try to fix the situation with David. Then David is going to respond in a way to fix the situation. And then Absalom is going to be a fixer as well. Just so you know, at this point, David is about 60 years old. So he is now, you know, an older man and he's dealing with heirs to the throne and all of that stuff. And he is dealing with this wayward, banished son. You could say in many ways, Absalom was a bit of a prodigal. And you might ask the question, why did David just do nothing? Well, maybe David was worried about protocol among his court. Maybe he was, maybe there was pride. Maybe there was hurt. You may have somebody right now that you haven't spoken to in years. And it's hard to know how to take the first step. Maybe you've crafted an email and you put it in your draft, right? Oh, I don't want to hit send on that. Maybe you've picked up the phone and began to dial the number and stopped yourself. Maybe you dialed the number and hung up. It's hard now because now they can tell that you called, right? So you can't do that anymore. But you may have a situation, and, and I hear about families. You know, sometimes a, a loved one died and there's an inheritance and they argue about the money and so-and-so hasn't talked to so-and-so. And sometimes it's decades and you're like, what? Well, it's, it'd been three years for David. And the king's heart, Proverbs 21.1 says, is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. And since David was a man after God's own heart, you have to imagine that David's heart was breaking. He didn't know what to do. He was torn over Absalom. And so Joab saw this. Joab perceived, verse 1, the king's heart. 
The word inclined there in the New American Standard is italicized because we're not sure what David's heart was. Was it against, in turmoil, or longing for Absalom? Here's what we do know. We know that David loved Absalom. We know that. The father loved his son. But what to do with that love at this moment, in this time period, I think, is the issue. And Joab think, thought that he knew where David's heart was. And Joab was his nephew. Joab had been there with David through thick and thin ups and downs from the times that he was running from Saul all the way to the throne of Israel. In fact, Joab was even involved in the murder of Uriah. So Joab was certainly faithful to David. And I think by this time, maybe Joab thought, I know the king pretty well. I know he's struggling, and I'm going to go in there and fix it. And so Joab sent it to Koah and brought, verse 2, a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner. Put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil. You have the NIV. It says, don't use any cosmetic lotions. You know times are desperate when you don't put makeup on. Sorry, ladies. Anyway, but like a woman who has been in mourning for the dead many days. So he goes to this area of Tekoa. He gets a woman who's supposed to be this wise woman. Maybe she's very good at being an actress as well. And he says, I want you to pretend like you're a mourner. I want you to put on mourning garments. I want you to not put on any anointing oil. And I want you to pretend like you've been mourning for days upon days upon days. Dress the part, look the part, and I'll tell you what to do. You're going to go and speak to the king in this manner. And so, so Joab put the words in her mouth. So he gave her the script. He said, this is what I want you to do. The king's having a tough time, so I want you to dress up like a mourner, pretend, and go to him, and I'll give you the story. Here's what you are going to say. And so he put the words in her mouth. Now, when the woman of Tekoa, verse 4, spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground. And remember, the king had his court, and people would often come to the king with difficult situations or pleas for help or even gifts for the king. She presented herself. She fell on her face to the ground, prostrated herself, and said, Help, O king, a plea that I'm sure David would have tenderness towards. The king said to her, What is your trouble? She said, Truly I'm a widow, for my husband is dead. And your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now you could see David, he's the king, he sits on his throne, he hears these kinds of stories all day long. He sees this poor mourning widow, she's got two sons, the other son killed the other in a struggle. They were in a field and they were struggling together, and there was no one to break up the fight, and it got terrible. And the one killed the other. Two sons in a field, one kills the other. What story does it remind you of? The story of Cain and Abel. A well-known story to anybody who was Jewish in Jewish society. This was a main Sunday school, I should say Sabbath school lesson you would get as you grew up in a Jewish household. And so David may have thought back to that scene and he may have thought back to his own sons, Absalom killing Amnon and all that went with that. Now behold, she said, the whole family has risen against your maidservant and they say, hand over the one who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he had killed, he killed and, just, and destroy the heir also. 
Thus, she says, they will extinguish or put out my coal, which is left. She, another way of saying, he's the only light in my life, the only warmth I have left, so as to leave my husband. And she said, she's a widow. Neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. My only surviving son. I know what he did was wrong. I know this shouldn't have happened, but he's all that I've got left. And if he dies, I'm going to be a widow without anything. And if he dies, the name of my dead husband will not even have an heir to continue that name. But this is a dilemma. And I have part of my family demanding. They're calling, texting, emailing. (laughs) And they're saying, you need to hand him over to us now. Back in the day, vengeance often happened where a family that was wronged would appoint someone to be a manslayer. And they would go out and they would seek vengeance for the one killed in their family. There were cities of refuge set up so that the avenger of blood might not kill somebody if you unintentionally killed somebody. In her story, we don't know if the brother killed the other intentionally or just in the heat of the moment. And this is huge when it comes to the law. The law would say if there was something that happened in the heat of the moment, that's more like manslaughter. You know, if something happened or maybe you were working somewhere and something flew off, uh, you know, a, a pick flew off and hit somebody, you didn't kill them on purpose. There's a difference with intent. The law has a lot to do with intent and premeditation. Well, in the story, she just says, look, the, the family's mad at me and they want me to hand over my only son. Can you imagine being this woman? Now, we know that she's just pretending. This is not a real story. But we know Joab gave her the story. Why? Because he wants David to do something about Absalom. And whenever you hear a story about somebody else, let's say it's a loss, a difficulty, what do you immediately tend to do as an individual? You immediately start thinking about what? Your own children, your own grandchildren. And you, and you start to apply the story to the ones that you love. And you may even have some difficult uh, similarities to the story that you hear. Maybe it's a movie that you watched or a show or whatever. And so David certainly is resonating with the story. And David said to the woman, verse 8, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. Uh, The NIV says, I will issue an order in your behalf. So things are looking up. It seems like David's going to help her. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, my Lord, the king. The iniquity is on me in my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. She may be saying here that the king was concerned that he may be doing something wrong if this was an intentional killing, allowing bloodshed to go unpunished. She may be saying, let the guilt fall on me and my family, no matter what you do, king. So the king said, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. She was having issues with her family, so David said, I'll protect you. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood may not continue to destroy lest they destroy my son. She's basically saying, will you make an oath before God? And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, when you have the king say that, man, you've got it going, right? He just made a vow before God that her son would be protected by the king of Israel. That is really what she wanted. Of course, if this was a real life situation, she'd be thrilled. 
but she presses a little bit more. Then the woman said, please let your maidservant speak. Verse 12, a word to my Lord, the king. And he said, speak. The woman sounds like a preacher. Just one more thing, king. Just one more thing. David may have sighed and said, okay, what is it? Speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring back his banished one. And the music plays. Dun, 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 dun. And the camera turns to David and he's like, what? This sounds familiar because Nathan the prophet came before David and shared a story. And David got enraged and he was righteously indignant until Nathan famously said, you are that man. And now a woman dressed in mourning clothes says, oh, by the way, king, after I've told the story and you want to protect my son, a man you don't even know who's not part of the royal throne, we're just an average family in Israel. Hey, what about your banished son who killed your other son? Will you apply the same justice and mercy and grace to your own child? Ouch. Sometimes we hear a story about some unknown person to us and we'd say, ah, we should apply grace in that situation. Then we look at our own family dynamics and we're not applying grace where we told somebody else to apply grace. I'm sure you've never done that before. I'm sure you've never given someone advice in a situation that's tough and difficult and then looked in the mirror and said, uh-oh. I haven't applied the same grace to people that I say I love the most and are closest to me. Convicting, isn't it? In fact, the Bible, when it says don't judge, which people often take out of context, really has two requirements, two main requirements about judgment. Don't be a hypocrite when you judge. The Bible commands you to judge, but it says to make a righteous judgment. And it says don't judge hypocritically, or don't just judge a book by its cover. Make sure you have the information. You can write down Matthew 7, verses 1 through about 4 or 5 there. And that's where Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He didn't say don't judge. He just said, make sure you can see clearly before you judge. And what will give you clarity is not living by a double standard. And so she confronts the king and she says, look at verse 13, middle of the verse. The king is as one who is guilty. Now, David thought this was just going to be an average day of giving judgment in other people's cases. It's much more convenient when we're talking about somebody else. It's much more convenient if I can hit somebody sitting next to me when a sermon is going forth and say, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Or when a sermon is being preached to, to think to yourself, I wish so-and-so was hearing this right now. In fact, I'm going to get a copy of this message and send it right over to them. Wait a minute. You might want to look at the log in your own eye first. Then you'll see clearly about the speck in your brother's eye. And so David now has been confronted. And he's probably kind of getting used to this. And so she says, she talks about the banished one that he has not brought back. And he says, for surely, for we shall surely die, 14. 
and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. Is that theologically correct? Let's break it down. She says when we die, it's like water being poured on the ground. So if you've ever taken, say you had a cup of water in your backyard, and let's say that you poured it into a plant that wasn't looking so good in your yard. That water immediately what? It starts to seep into the parched ground. Can you gather it back up in the cup? Nope. Once the water's poured out, it's gone. And once life is over, please hear what I'm about to say. It's over. If you want to reconcile a relationship, you want to make something right, God's been putting something on your heart, do it now before the water gets poured out into the ground and you can't scoop it back into the cup again. Everybody with me? Don't, don't do it at the memorial service when it's too late. Now look, God is a God of grace and we all have our regrets, but we can learn from maybe times when we did it wrong. I think the woman's saying, King, there's a sense of urgency that you get this right. And then she says, God even has ways for banished ones to get back. And I think she's correct. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We certainly are on a search and rescue mission as a fellowship, are we not? And sometimes the hardest cases we have are wayward sheep, prodigal sons and daughters, people who have sinned against the Lord and have gone out and we don't know where they are. And sometimes we've tried and we have biblical formulas for how we're supposed to do this. So it's not always that we, you know, we have to reach out the olive branch, but not everybody takes it. Now she says, now the reason I have come to speak this word to my Lord the King is because the people have made me afraid. She kind of goes back to her own story now, but she's saying that the nation is at risk because Absalom is supposed to be in line for the throne. So she says, your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, please let the word of my lord, the king, be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord, the king, to discern good and evil. And may the Lord, your God, be with you. The woman cleverly returned to her story, but she kept weaving her story together with David's story so that he would be on the hook for a decision. The whole reason that Joab has put this pretend situation in her mouth was to get the king to see his own situation, to see his wrong. And sometimes when we're listening to a Bible story, God's intent is for you to see where you fit in the story. So you don't just listen to the Bible as someone who's sitting in the stands as a casual observer. In the Jewish mind, when these stories were told, they would ask, where do you see yourself in the story? You might want to just pause for a moment and ask the Spirit of God to help you to see what application you might make in your own life. Because if you don't apply God's word, you're just a hearer of the word and not what? A doer. And you become self-deluded. And that's James 1.22. 
And so the king answered and said to the woman, now he's starting to get the idea that there's somebody behind this that he knows. He says, please do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king please speak. It almost seems like the tables have turned. Now he's asking for permission from the woman if he can speak. It seems like she's taking control of the conversation. You ever been there before? You thought you were in control of a conversation and now the other person is allowing you to speak and you're the king. Well, we'll leave that (laughs) for you to ponder. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you? You could put it this way. Is Joab behind this whole thing? And the woman answered and said, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in my mouth of your maidservant David's on the throne. I know it! could hear Joab in all of this. Which indicates something else. Joab probably has been having conversations with David for a couple of years about Absalom. Maybe something like this. Give the kid a break. You know why this happened. You've been through your own turmoil and God forgave you. Maybe Joab's trying to be that voice of reason and David's been difficult and obstinate. Maybe you've been the person on this side, the Joab person. Give the kid a break. Come on, man. And, or maybe you've been David. No, no. I won't, I won't, I won't. Well, we'd like to think that Joab's in the right position, but you're gonna find out, since this message is called the best laid plans, that even though Joab meant well, in the end, this is not gonna turn out real well. And so, I don't know if Joab was standing behind a curtain in the king's court listening, how she tell the story, right? Oh, good, yeah, oh, good, good. Well, he did this in order to change the appearance or the course of things. Verse 20. Your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise like the wisdom of the angel of God. She's trying to soften things on Joab, I think. To know all that is in the earth. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation, NIV. Then the king said to Joab, get over here. (laughs) Loose translation. Come into my office. What are you up to? He said, behold now, I will surely do this thing. Now, Joab is in the verse 20, ver- first 20 verses. He's the fixer. And so, so David acquiesces. He, he surrenders to it. He's convicted and he says, okay, I'll do this thing. Go therefore and bring back the young man, Absalom. Okay, I hear you. Got the point. Go get the boy. But was David's response Correct. Well, we're going to find out that as human beings, we, we can't see through everything. Maybe there was a reason that David's heart was in turmoil. Maybe there was a reason that David wasn't ready. It's, it's not always easy to discern timing of things. And so David's scheme is one of compromise. Joab tries to fix, David compromises. And there's a time to compromise, especially if the Lord's speaking to you. But it's not, you don't just say yes to everything And so Joab fell on his face to the ground. He was happy because he had risked his whole life and career. He prostrated himself, 22, blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight. Glad that you didn't deal with me harshly. Oh, my Lord, the king, in that the king has performed the request of his servant. 
So Joab arose, he went to Gesher, about 80 miles away from Jerusalem, and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. He went and got the banished one. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house. Let him not see my face, 24. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So the king said, he can come back into town. He can go back to his place, but I don't want to see him. Does that tell you something about where David was? David said, he can come a little closer. He can move back in, but don't have him look at my face. I'm not going to talk to him. Just, he can take a step back towards reconciliation. Maybe that's a, a fair thing to do at some times. And so it tells me a lot about David's state of mind. David still had some hostility towards Absalom, or certainly he was in turmoil. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to treat him. And Absalom at this point, since he can't even look upon the king's face, is effectively removed from the throne because he's an heir to the throne, but David's not even talking to him. So now here's what happens. He's back in town. He doesn't see the king. Now all in all Israel, there was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him, almost like Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, good looking. In fact, this guy had a head of hair to die for. Look at the next verse. When he cut the hair of his head, it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. Some believe this is an exaggerated number. Some believe that his hair weighed about five pounds. This dude had a do. And he was good. He was a bit of a celebrity in Israel. Pictures of him everywhere. Look at Absalom's hair. Isn't it to die for? And when he would cut his hair at the end of every year, he kept wig companies in business and toupee companies in business. And a lot of people had Absalom's hair they, who were not doing so well. This dude was popular. Good looking. Celebrity status. Tell you something about Israel, doesn't it? Man, Absalom's good looking. But what about his moral character? What about his heart? You know, we, we in our culture, we are so enamored by good looks and how people present themselves. But that doesn't always tell the case of the content of the character, does it? And so Absalom was a popular dude. You get the idea that Absalom was a bit of a narcissist and had an ego as big as his hair. <laughs> At the end of every year, you can imagine a whole group of people watching him get a haircut, bidding on his hair. I don't know how it worked. Now, to Absalom, there was born three sons, 27. They seem to have died young, as we'll find out later. One daughter, whose name was Tamar, he obviously named her in honor of his sister, the name means palm tree. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. A lot of uh, beautiful people in this family. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. He had been away for three, didn't see the king's face for two, five years. He hasn't seen his dad. Five years, no communication. Five years, he doesn't look upon his dad. There's no chance for explanations, reconciliation, nothing. And here's what happens. 
Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. In essence, Absalom felt like he was on house arrest. So he sent a second time, but he would not come. And he was getting desperate. He was sick of the situation. So he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine as he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. He's not going to come and talk to me? Okay. Hey, boys, come here. We have a plan. See that field over there? Now, you have Joab trying to fix the situation. You have David acquiescing, compromising to fix it, even though it may not have been the right thing. And then Absalom doesn't get what he wants, so he sets the field on fire. This is what we call manipulation. Can everybody say that word? Manipulation. We can tend to be manipulators to get what we want to the degree that someone would even set something on fire to get somebody's attention. And it happens today. There are people who set things on fire just to get people's attention. And, uh, and of course, oftentimes nobody even knows who set the fire. And so Absalom's servants, they, they do it. They set the field on fire. And Joab's crop would force him now as he goes back and tries to deal with the fire, it would force him to now speak to Absalom. And Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? What are you doing? There's different ways to get someone's attention, but I would not recommend this particular approach. Sometimes people feel like they're invisible. They almost have to start a fire to get our attention. And so this tells you something about Absalom's character, doesn't it? He couldn't wait anymore. And so he sets a fire. Maybe he's a bit of a narcissist. Maybe he has an entitlement syndrome. Maybe he's arrogant, insolent. And Absalom said to Joab, well, I sent for you and you didn't come. You're not returning my phone call. So what else could I do but set your field on fire? <laughs> wow. You need to get back to me when I email you, bro. <laughs> Why is there a big key mark on my car? Well, you, you won't call me back. So he says, look, I sent for you. Why have I even come here? Why have I come from Gesher, middle of 32? It would be better for me to, to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. If there's iniquity in me, let me be put to death. Let's get this thing over with. If I'm guilty, I'm guilty. If he wants me back, then he wants me back. And so Joab came to the king and told him about Absalom's ultimatum, because that's what it was. And he called for Absalom. And thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Absalom comes home, if you will, into the court. And the king kissed him. I think Absalom feigned submission to the king. Oh, king, thank you. And I think David's kiss was more obligatory than it was maybe emotion-based. This kiss could be a formal way of restoring somebody without the emotion behind it. And what you're going to find happens next, and this will be for next time is that Absalom begins to hatch a plan. If you know the story, you know where this is going. 
to steal the throne away from his father. And Joab, the man who was so concerned about Absalom's position and posture and how long he had been away from the king, will end up killing Absalom. And irony of all ironies, the way they get to him is he gets stuck on a tree branch by his big hairdo. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is thick. This, this, myth, this is stuff for the movies, baby. And when it happens, do you think Joab will reflect back on his fixing and think, you know, this might not have been such a grand idea. It sounded like a good plan at the time until Absalom began to try to steal the throne from his father and basically start a civil war in Israel. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And so the Bible says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you all turn to Romans 12? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. I'm going to leave you with these verses. I could give you many, many verses about discerning God's will, but at the end of this message, I just want to give you Romans 12, 1 and 2. I think you all know it, but here's a good reminder. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And if the worship team can hear my voice, come on up. I urge you, Romans 12, 1, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You want to know God's will, you need to have your mind saturated with his word so that you may prove or test what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The first plank in knowing God's will is surrender to him, Seek him, offer yourself to him, have your mind saturated and transformed with God's word. Don't do what the world does, do what God says, and you'll be able to test and discover God's will. It's not always easy, as you can tell from this story. But did you ever hear in this story anybody pray about God's will? Did you hear in this story anywhere where a prophet came to David and said, it is now time to restore Absalom back to the royal court. Did you hear that? Did you hear anything about anybody praying, anybody getting a word from God, anybody seeking godly counsel? Nope. What you saw is fixers, people who said, this sounds like a good idea. I had a pastor one time say to me, something can be a good idea or it can be a God idea. And there's a big difference between a good idea, in quotes, and a God idea. Let's make sure that what we do is a God idea. Amen? Father, thank you so much for your word. It's, it hits right where we live. I pray that you'll give us wisdom as we try to figure out situations. And there, there are many in this room who are going through something that this, this hit home with them. And it's hard sometimes to know what to do. But we need to start by seeking your face, seeking wisdom from the word of God, praying about situations, getting godly counsel, 
Sometimes it means waiting on the Lord until we have clarity. But I pray that you will speak to your church what they need to hear. If they're going through something specific right now, may you grant uh, grace to those who need a word from you, Lord, or maybe they just need to be reassured that they're doing the right thing. But I pray that those who are off course, you'll get us back on course and uh, you'll help us to align our lives with the kingdom of God. And I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Would you keep your heart bowed if you've not met the king or you need to get right with him? Just cry out to him, Lord Jesus, save me. Sorry for my sin, but I thank you that you died on that cross. Pray it if it's you. Thank you for rising from the dead. I want to be your servant. I want to know you. Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. I repent of my sin and I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. If you've cried out to God, just rest assured that he is a God of grace and salvation is a gift of God. And he will save you if you cry out to him. If you need to rededicate yourself, it's something similar. Just yield back to his lordship. And Father, I just, again, just pray your blessing on your precious saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?